let's talk about if you've ever dealt. I, I didn't have to deal with this. Um, my um, my parents uh, had me at age 32, and uh, it was like uh, this is enough. Okay, it was like so. I don't. I don't. Yeah, one is more than enough. Believe me, in, in my case. And so I, I don't have siblings, and which is kind of a funny thing because I became an orphan at 47. Uh, I've been without my dad and mom for that, that kind of time. And um, um, so it, it, my life is, is interesting now because you are my brothers and sisters. You've always been. And with mom and dad gone, uh, I reach out. That, that may be what drives me a lot in, in terms of the relational side of my life. But I do. Uh, hang out with lots of people who have siblings and some who deal with sibling rivalry. That's kind of what we're going to deal with today from chapter 25 in the book of Genesis. But um, what, I, what I want to kind of give us some encouragement about is that when siblings get along, they can have a profound impact on one another and really on the world. Consider this. Orville and Wilbur Wright changed the nature of transportation. By the way, if you've read their story, and if you haven't, if you if you're interested in that, uh, David McCullough wrote an incredible book about them a couple of years back. One of these thick guys, but it's really really good. And the most astounding part of their story is how well they got along. People noticed it. How well they how well they got along. Um, uh, so and think how they changed the nature of transportation. I know people that right now are flying on an airplane. Um, because of what they did together. Venus and Serena Williams have both been Olympic gold medalists, and they did part of that as, um, as doubles champions. Okay, they, uh, I think that's interesting. They're both really good. One's probably better than the other, but they can play doubles together. I think that's really, really interesting. Hubert, I'm looking at you because you're, you're my tennis connection over here. Um, uh, the Marx Brothers. Now, you've got to be of a certain age to remember the Marx Brothers. They're Jewish, you know. Uh, I do know. But weren't they fun together? And they all had a different thing uh, that they did. Um, uh, the Lennon Sisters, singing together, made a huge difference. Uh, John and Charles Wesley became famous for preaching and hymn writing and, and all those things. Um, and there's Linus and Lucy. Now, now, Linus and Lucy don't get along a whole lot, but do you know that the song that from the Peanuts stuff that you like, the, the thing that Schroeder plays all the time, the name of that song is Linus and Lucy. That's inf affected you. That, that great little jazz piano piece that everybody likes to hear, especially this time of year. So here's the deal. When siblings work together, it, it goes really well. When siblings are in rivalry, it can have a devastating out, outcome. I read this week about um, two women, both of whom were enormously successful. Um, um, Olivia de Havilland and her uh, 15 months younger sister, Joan Fontaine. Okay? Both enormously successful, both of them received Best Actresses Oscars, and they nearly hated each other in rivalry because one of them had two and the other one had one. 
Isn't that interesting? Now, we're going to meet a couple of brothers today who are the um, kind of the epitome of sibling rivalry. What, what I want you to know as we think through this is um, that um, before we read about them, we've already read about some other rivalries in the book of Genesis. I think it's interesting. Cain and Abel. Ishmael and Isaac. Remember the story that we've just come through? Uh, Leah and Rachel, uh, which we'll see kind of later. It's interesting how the book of Genesis is kind of full of this, and it kind of kind of uh, uh, begins here. Now, initially, okay, we, our story has been, uh, since we started this study back in September, we've talked about how God created and now is in the process of recreating humanity to serve his purposes found in Genesis 3.15 of redeeming mankind, to get us all the way to a savior in the New Testament. But in order to do that, he's got to do some things, uh, I, I want to say, uh, he has to do some things regardless of the people he's got to work through. Okay? I do not want to be the kind of person that he, he has to work through regardless, in spite of. And yet, Jacob is one of those guys. Initially, Jacob had little regard for anybody except himself. We're going to meet him today. We'll look at that story more in depth next week. He was a man who lived by his wits. He had the ability to outwit and outmaneuver and outsmart anybody who crossed his path. Eventually, he learns to acknowledge God, but not before the consequences of his deceitful actions have dogged him. And we're going to look at that a little bit next week in particular. So, for today, I want us to begin to look at, uh, in the book of Genesis, this idea of sibling rivalry. Um, and, and what begins as kind of a wonderful story ends up with kind of a devastating outcome. So, let's go. Steve, you, I walked in this morning, you were practicing reading. Uh, he literally was, I love that, he was reading the Bible. Uh, that, Rhonda's already read it, so I could call on you to read today. You've already practiced. Let's go to chapter 25, and I want you to read, Steve, if you will, 19 down through 23, and then I'm going to back up a little bit and give a little context. So. Okay, now, if you look at the first several verses of, the, of chapter 25, beginning with about verse 12 and only for seven verses or so, down through verse 18, you're going to read about Hagar and Ishmael, all right? You're going to read about Abraham's attempt to uh, kind of get ahead of God on that. You can read that in former chapters, and here's what happens with Ishmael. It's kind of, it kind of gives his, 
his, the story of his progeny and those kinds of things. What I want you to kind of catch here is that by comparison, so if there are seven verses or so that are dedicated to the life of Ishmael and what happened with his kids and, and, and his descendants, then when we begin the story of Isaac and Rebekah here, you've already met Isaac as the child of promise from Abraham and Sarah from a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we looked at finding Rebekah as a wife for Isaac, if you remember that story. What you need to understand is the story of Isaac takes about 10 chapters or more to tell. Why the difference? Because Isaac was the child of promise. Isaac was the son of promise. What, um, uh, what uh, way back in chapter 12 was promised to Abraham is carried on through Isaac. And it's going to be carried on through one of Isaac's sons. And it will be carried on through his, uh, uh, that son's son. So, you remember the line of promise that's going to satisfy the, the redemption that's promised in Genesis 3.15 goes through Isaac. The covenant goes through Isaac. Now, one of the, the only other comment I'll make about the first couple of verses here that Steve read is that when he's talking about um, uh, the Aramean, Bethuel, the Aramean, don't get hung up in that because you know that later on uh, the Israelites meet Arameans and it doesn't go well, all that kind of thing. This just, when you think of Aram here in this context, think of Mesopotamia, back where, um, where Abraham originally came from, uh, where he left from to go to Canaan when God called him to do that. Uh, think of the area of um, the world where, um, where uh, Abraham's servant last week sent him back to find a wife, Rebecca, for Isaac. So when you hear Aram there, don't get uh, concerned about these people being Arameans and being bad people. It's talking more about it being an area of the world. Now, look at verse 21. What did Isaac do when he discovered Rebecca's barrenness? Immediately. It seems like it was his first line of defense. Now, look at 12.2. Isaac had learned this from his dad. Uh, um, at 12.2, it's promised to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great. And so, and so you shall be a blessing. And as, as God has given Abraham that blessing, Abraham repeatedly goes to God in prayer and says, why isn't this happening? He asks him. He prays about it. He prays about it more than once. I'm sure that Isaac did the same thing, but it's recorded here. When Isaac discovers the barrenness of his, his wife, Rebecca, what does he do about that? Now, here's what I think is really, really interesting in the Old Testament, somewhat in the New Testament. Sarah, Rebecca, her daughter-in-law, Rachel, Rebecca's daughter-in-law, all three had the same problem, barrenness. Isn't it interesting that, that woven through this promise from Genesis 3.15 are uh, these women who were barren. God answers Isaac as he prays. Um, but it's not what you've got to catch here. It's not to save Rebecca from embarrassment. How embarrassing would this have been in Rebecca's day to not be able to conceive? Incredibly shameful. 
uh, I have um, kind of counseled and, and, and tried to be with couples who were who are having trouble conceiving. And I realize even today it carries a little bit of a stigma with it, but even more so back then. But the prayer that Isaac prays is answered by God not to, not to allay Rebecca's embarrassment over not being able to conceive. It's in order to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham and that he had, uh, that goes way back to the prophecy of 315, of, of Genesis 315. It's to keep his promise to Abraham that we read in, in chapter 12. So, Rebekah is worried about that. Isaac has prayed. And in verse uh, 22, then, uh, Rebekah begins to pray. Why? Verse 22. Do what? Well, it's certainly your only choice. And you love the fact that she goes here. But what happens to precipitate this? Something doesn't seem right. You're right, Julie. There's something going on in her womb. Now, um, this is the first story that I remember reading, at least in the Bible, that proved me wrong, of twins being conceived. Evidently, Rebecca had gone to a Canaanite fertility clinic. And because they had given her all those drugs, you know, you tend to have multiples when uh, there's a fertility doctor involved. Now, that's probably not what's going on here. This is, this is brand new here. Um, uh, Rebecca conceives, but something is wrong. Or could I answer? Or is something twice right? That's really the answer. The only it's way not the. It could do what? The only way it could well, isn't it interesting that that instead of something being wrong, something's doubly right? But she doesn't know that. She just knows there's something not right inside here. Something doesn't feel right. So. Um, she consults God. Now, it's interesting here. It says that she went and prayed. We don't know where she went. You catch that in the verse? In verse 22, it says, if, if yours reads like mine, uh, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it's so, then why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Can I just ask you a question? Where do you go when you really need to hear from God? Have you got a place? Uh, Katie, I heard you, I saw you say something, but I didn't hear it. Uh, certainly to your knees. Have you got a place where you go? Now, I'm not, uh, Dan, you talked about a prayer closet. Uh, you know, there, there is this idea that where do I go? Is there a location? Is there a place where when things are really bad, you know God will meet me there? I can't answer that for you. I know where I would go. So it doesn't say where Rebecca goes. It just says she goes and she seeks God. And in verse 23, God is going to begin to answer. What's his answer? By the way, let me fill in your blank there. Um, the worried, expectant mom is going to the right source with her concerns. She's going to, to God where she needs to go. And God, by verse 23, is beginning to answer her. She knows clearly it's from him. What does he say to her? You got two. And he doesn't use the word boys. He 
He uses the word nations. There are two nations within you. Isn't that interesting? Remember the promise back in 12.2 to Abraham? You will become a great nation. Now there's two. Okay, God says there will be two nations coming from you, but they're going to be out of sequence. Now, uh, John, can I get you to go to Deuteronomy 21? There's 15, 16, and 17 from Deuteronomy 21. It's going to tell us kind of by the time Mosaic Law is written down, here's how things are supposed to be. Okay? Uh, but Genesis stands this thing on its head quite a bit. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, verse 15, 16, and 17. There is a right of the firstborn. And it's talking about the, the context. When you first started reading that, John, I'd forgotten that it goes kind of around the barn to get there. But it's the idea, um, even if the other wife is the beloved, that doesn't change things. So the way of the law, the law is not written here in Genesis 25, but when it finally gets to be written, down and, and is recounted here a second time by Moses in Deuteronomy. He says, you know, the way this is supposed to be is the, the firstborn gets some stuff that the others don't. There is a birthright there. But the issue is here when God prophesies over these two little boys who, by the way, are already fighting within their mother's womb. They're going to fight most of the rest of their lives. There will be some peace that will come, but it will come way, way later when they're old men. But they're fighting in their mother's womb already. That's, that's why she has to go to the, uh, you know, go to the uh, uh, OBGYN and say, what's the matter with me? Okay. Two nations are at war here. And what does God say? The older will serve the younger. He, gets, he, he says, this is going to be backwards. Now, Genesis does this a bit. Uh, if you think about it here. Abel had preference over Cain, even though he was the younger. Isaac had preference over Ishmael, even though he was the younger. Um, um, you're going to find later on, we're going to find that Rachel will take preference over um, Leah, even though, even though Leah was the older. Um, uh, uh, we're going to find Joseph was uh, his father's favorite, had preference, even though he was one of the younger. So uh, it's kind of one of the ideas here is that uh, I want to kind of help you think about, help us all think about here, is that um, this idea of the, young, the, the older serving the younger or the younger taking precedent has to do, I think, with a concept that you and I don't really get acquainted with and understand till we've read the New Testament. It's called grace. Amazing grace that would say, God, 
even though I'm undeserving. Nonetheless. You know, I'm kind of a nonetheless guy. There is no reason that I should have been blessed by the Lord. There's no reason I should have been called by God. Nonetheless, He did. And there are a lot of days when I'm clear in my thinking where I begin to think, you know what? I am who I am nonetheless. It's not because I earned it, deserved it. And nonetheless, God just touched me and graced me. And he has you too. So, maybe occasionally, maybe during this Thanksgiving season, it'd be a good thing to say, Lord, let me just recount to you all the ways that you have graced me nonetheless. I should have but you. I should have but you. I should have but God. I should have but God. This shouldn't have happened to me, but God. Aren't we all kind of nonetheless people when we're clear and looking at it? Isn't it true that though something should have happened to me to the contrary, yet he blesses me nonetheless? I'm a nonetheless guy because of God's grace. Jacob is going to be chosen to carry this promise even though nonetheless he was the younger, not the older. Okay, let's read the next section. John, I'm going to come back to you if I can. Would you read 24 down through 28? Okay, now let's talk about these two boys that are born to Rebecca and Isaac. Okay, now, um, in the, the Bible and in those days, a name reflects some detail. You'll read a lot of stories where it'll say, and the child was born, and they saw this, and they named him this. Or, uh, the child was born, and this happened, and so they named her this. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, so, uh, what they saw with Esau was what? Red hair. Okay, put, put two words in here. He was red and hairy. <laughs> Evidently, unusually hairy. Now, according to wives' tales, Rebecca must have had a lot of heartburn. You know that deal? If they have heartburn, you're gonna, they're going to have a lot of hair. Well, he had hair all over him. He was woolly. And it was red it was red, so we'll talk about that redness here in a minute. But the kind of idea here is that um, kind of that's what. See how slow I had to bend that over to get that. That's so I don't fall. Huh? You need help. Help me, Joe. I need help in more ways than one, Dan. Okay, so how was uh, the. The next verse, okay, so Esau is this way. How does it describe Jacob? Do, well, it's going to describe that, but as he is born, 
They're going to name him something that has to do with something that happened when they were born. Heel grabber. He's a heel grabber. So put the word grab in there. Literally, the Hebrew word that, that means Jacob is uh, the word grab or grasp. Okay? Uh, he's going to be a heel grabber, a deceiver. Um, it's kind of, kind of that deal. Um, the idea here is that even if I got to grab my rival and pull him back, I'm going to be successful. Okay? Even if I got to grab him and pull him, I'm going to be successful. So this is going to be for years. Uh, this will be this way. Now, an interesting detail that comes out of this verse 26, I think, interesting. His brother came forth with his hand holding on Jacob's heel, Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when he gave birth to him. When Isaac and Rebekah got together, Isaac was how old? 40. He waited 20 years for kids. And that's an incredible story of these people's faith as, uh, uh, by the way, whoever's texting me should be in church. Okay? Just tell me. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that all these, they got to wait years and years and years and years to receive the promise that they were given. 20 years for Isaac and Rebecca. And they got these two boys. They're doubly blessed, but there's going to be some problems here. Now, look at verse 27. What are the differences? Jopi, here's where you were going a minute ago. What are the differences? How does this describe the differences between these two guys? Mama's boy and daddy's boy. Certainly by verse 28. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, basically, okay, Esau shopped at Cabela's in Bass Pro, or is it now called Bass Cabela's or Cabro Pro, Cabela's Pro Shop? I don't, I don't know. They're, all, they're doing the same commercials now. And Jacob, uh, he kind of shopped at Office Depot and Pottery Barn, okay? Pottery Barn. <laughs> hung around the house. Hey, Mom, that would look a lot better if you put curtains over here. So he goes to Pottery Barn and brings it back. Okay, so they're just different guys. They couldn't be more different. Verse 27. Esau was a man. He was a field and stream guy is how I would describe it, Roger. Like you are, a field and stream guy. And you were glad through your career that there were field and stream guys out there, weren't you? Okay, because you sold them stuff. Jacob was a homebody. Learned to cook. Yeah, that's going to be part of the story. Okay? They couldn't have been different. But because of their differences, or maybe they became different, look at the detail in verse 28. Dad favored Esau. Mom favored Jacob. The problem here is favoritism. Did the parents, Isaac and Rebecca, cause this rivalry? Now, there was something going on even in the womb, I reckon. But my experience is a lot of really desperate sibling, sibling rivalry that I see is actually sometimes brought on by the favoritism of the parents. And we see it on both sides here. Have you seen that? The differences were exaggerated by their parents' dysfunction. Mom and dad were dysfunctional. And so the way Jacob was and the way Esau was just caused them to be even further apart 
dad loved one, mom loved the other. Uh, the dysfunction causes the rivalry, guys. Do you catch that? If you're in a home with multiple siblings, and I'm going to tell you, if you're in your 60s or your 70s or whatever, maybe you're still dealing with it. I'm going to tell you that oftentimes it comes from not just the way you were born. Ron and I were talking about birth order this morning. There's a lot of, of great theory on birth order as well. But a lot of times, even later in life, the way parents respond to kids, the favoritisms often that's shown, causes sibling rivalry to start and to be continued. My experience, at least. Miss Cindy, can we get you to go to verse 29? We'll close this out. 29 down through 34. Here's the beginning of this thing living out. They, these boys become young men. Um, Esau's been out hunting. He comes in famished. Here's the story, verse Okay, now follow me here, all right? Esau's second name, so we, we know he was called Harry, all right? Not like Harry Curry, but with an I in it. Esau's second name was Red, so it's, it's talked about even here. Uh, that could be referring to the stew that was being made, so maybe he was being called stew. Uh, you know, I don't know, but... Okay, so the lentil stew. Haven't had lentil stew. Doesn't sound very good to me. Okay. But evidently Esau liked it. Certainly wanted some here. So his second name is used to describe his descendants. So the name that you need to put in there is E-D-O-M. Edom. 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 His descendants will from here on out be called Edomites. And that means red. Okay. It could refer to the red stew that his brother tricked him with. Or could refer to something else. Herod the Great, at the time of Jesus' birth, was an Edomite. He was an Esauite. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Uh, his group of people are going to be prophesied against by the prophet Obadiah. Obadiah. You read Obadiah, it's against Edom. It's against Esau's people. Generations later, uh, when I did uh, walk through the Bible years ago, they would help me remember that by saying what Obadiah was saying is, Oh, bad Edom. Okay. So that's, that's kind of the deal. Now, there's a new concept that comes up in verse 31. It's this concept of a birthright. It occurs 10 times in the Old Testament. Five of them, half of them, referring to Jacob and Esau. It's this idea of a birthright. Um, now, Jacob is beginning to heel grab right here. Okay? He desires leadership in the family. He wants the blessing. He wants the birthright. And so the hunter, Roger, the hunter becomes the prey. Jacob sets him up. 
this new concept of birthright. And so in verse 32, Esau, I believe, exaggerates his condition. What does he say? I'm going to die. He's probably not going to die. He's probably saying, I'm starving to death. A guy literally says, a guy can't eat his birthright. Right? He can't eat a birthright. It's a big deal. Give me some stew. Okay? So he exaggerates his condition, and they make an oath. The oath is accompanied by a sign. Now, I put a reference here because literally the first time you see this sign that I can remember is when Abraham and... Um, Abraham and his servant are making a deal that the servant will go back to Paddan Aram and get uh, a wife for Isaac, and, and that's how we got Rebekah. He puts his hand under his thigh. Okay, that probably the same thing that happened here. One brother said to the other, Jacob says to Esau, come put your hand under my thigh and swear to me. They made an oath. You may want to look that up. It's kind of an interesting little thing. I don't recommend that you do that now. Signed a deal on a house Friday. I didn't put my hand under anybody's thigh. I just wrote checks and signed a bunch of papers. Okay, I don't recommend that you say, okay, put your hand under my thigh and we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll buy your car. Yeah, yeah that's not going to work, but, but it worked then. The word testimony comes. It, it, it does it really. I'll have to look that up. Now, so it's accompanied by a sign. Is that where they get pulling your leg? Uh, that's a great question, by the way. Maybe he did, maybe Jacob was pulling his leg. I don't know. Okay, so you got this sign accompanying it. And Esau, I want you to catch how simply he does this and how simply it's reported. Esau gives up his spiritual leg legacy just like that. Listen to what it says again in verse 34. Somebody read verse 34. I've already turned away from it. What does it say? Jacob gave Esau ate, got up and left, burped on the way out the door. And the Bible says, so, he despised the birthright. <laughs> Gave up his spiritual legacy. My question is this, and I want you to go with me to Hebrews 12. That's where we're going to end, and I'm going to end here in just a second. Hebrews 12. Is a full stomach worth more important than a full heart? Neither one of these boys had a full heart at this point. But Esau certainly didn't have one. Listen to how the New Testament reports what Esau did. It's devastatingly clear. I'm going to go to Hebrews 12. I'm going to begin in verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Pursue peace with all men. That's the context of this. Don't fight with other people anymore. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. See how he was described in the New Testament? Who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, just like that, he ate and he drank and he left. No big deal. But it couldn't have been a bigger deal. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5 in, in the 
greatest sermon ever preached. In Matthew 5, Jesus is going to say, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. We've been studying this on Tuesday morning with my men's group, and I really believe that one of the things that Jesus is saying is that I can choose what I'll be hungry for. I can choose what I'll be hungry for. And there are times when I do better at this than others. But when I'm hungering for good things, for the right things, for righteous things, I am always come up satisfied. Is it more important to have a full belly or a full heart? 